You're listening to Her Body IOFM with your hosts, Alex Navarro and Andrea Jangle, the women's source for optimal health and lifelong performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Her Body, brought to you by Body IOFM. I'm your host, Alex Navarro, and we have a very special guest with us today, Menel Henselmans, who I had the pleasure of sitting on a panel with at the most recent Paleo FX this past April. We talked about supplementation for performance, and I had previously uh, read about you, Menno, and read some of your stuff and listened to a few of the podcasts that you were on. But it was actually great to meet you in person and talk about supplementation, which was great. Um, do you want to share a little bit about who you are and your background? You're also the uh, owner of BayesianBodybuilding.com. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. And um, it's great to be on the show, Alex. Uh, I'll give a brief introduction about my background. I originally started off working as a business consultant, and there I learned most of the things I know about uh, statistics, uh, also via my education, because that was in statistics and economics mostly. But I soon found out that wasn't really my true passion in life, so I switched over to um, mostly coaching at the time, and now I do more education too. I founded the Bayesian Bodybuilding Method, uh, Bayesian refers to the use of rational thinking and statistics and science to make evidence-based decisions. So um, I, I like the, the contrast there. And the bodybuilding is traditionally a very kind of dogmatic, uh, mm -hmm. tradition-based community. So um, basically my, my thing is introducing um, statistical and evidence-based reasoning in bodybuilding. Which I think is is very appropriate for our our audience as well, because as as you know, Kiefer, he is very much of the same realm. And as as much as we thrive in and in feed into the new research and always looking at you know what what case studies have been done and whatnot, it's always important to have that that practical component as well. Because I'm sure in your experience working with clients, there's been a bit of variability um, from person to person. Definitely. Yeah. Inter-individual variabilities, it's something that really cannot be ignored and people that try to find, you know, the one right answer in science, you know, you should have a diet like it's this percent carbohydrate, this percent protein, this percent fat, this will work the best for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, you should set up your diet exactly like this, this number of sets that you won't find that. Right. Very true. Very true. I think that's a really important um, component to drive home to everybody who's listening. And it's something that we talk about a lot on our show is just that, you know, there are some, the basic principles um, and numbers that you can shoot for, but it's, there's a lot of, there's going to be trial and error that comes along with anything. Yeah, sure. When you first started, when you first got into fitness, you, you had done physique competitions in the past. Is that correct? Uh, no, just modeling. Just modeling, gotcha. I don't actually, yeah, I don't actually compete. Um, I prefer modeling, stepping on stage. Is, uh, I might do it at one point, but it's it's going to be more of a, a business thing. You know, I coach so many competitors that um, I feel like I should um, do a competition just for the, the actual experience firsthand. Right. But uh, I mainly prefer to do photo shoots. 
which which also requires you to be on point with your physique. And I'm sure through that, you've had a lot of your own personal experimentation with diet protocols and, and training as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I approach a competition and a photo shoot basically in the same way. So. Practical application. And and when did you when you first started working with clients? Did you mostly work with competitors, or were they fairly average folks? Um, it it has always varied. Um, I'd say at some point I was at fifty fifty competitor versus you know more average Joe or uh, woman. And lately I've been having um, a lot more female clients too, and more. Um, I'd say maybe 30% competitors, 70% other people, some athletes, a few powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, rarely, um, but a few. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that most of my core audience, if I have any, is more the um, kind of student, um, more more evidenced thinking kind of guy that... Um, um, appreciates evidence has you know come to quite a, a good point at least intermediate you know um, uh, gets their protein in um, mm-hmm. does heavy strength training at least three times a week and wants to take it to the next level basically. right just more looking for that those fine tunings the tweaks that can be made based off of research and evidence that that you've been able to find exactly which is great would you say that there's a big difference between the men and women that you work with in terms of your nutritional approach? Definitely. Um, nutrition as well as training, but uh, nutrition as well. For, um, for example, it's a very well-established finding in research that women um, have a very glucose and protein-sparing metabolism, which basically means that they rely more on fatty acids as the substrate fuel basically for pretty much any kind of exercise they're doing, mm-hmm. which means that women uh, don't need as many carbohydrates as men. Basically, that's definitely something that I found as well in working with with the ladies. Just the, the requirements aren't aren't there. We don't need them as much. Nope. Did you find a big difference between women who were? M- more in a sedentary lifestyle versus those who were avid lifters and perhaps had been athletes previously, but it, more so in their require in their carbohydrate requirements. Yes, I would say so. I think um, women that are um, or people in general that are overweight and sedentary are much more likely, even to be carb intolerant, mm-hmm. which means that low carb diets have. Um, strong preference, and that is um, at least less likely in people that are um, or on their own basically have already made it uh, to a successful level in athletics. Mm-hmm. So less likely to be a very carb intolerant individuals. And would you say that the, that their training had a lot to do with that? Yes, for sure. You can uh, create. You can increase your own carb tolerance. Um, mainly by decreasing body fat percentage mm-hmm. and um, resistance exercise in itself greatly increases insulin sensitivity. Insulin sensitivity isn't the only thing that matters. Uh, you, sh- you should look at whole um, glucose and insulin dynamics to see if the amount of 
insulin that someone is secreting is appropriate given that levels or given that person's insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. But um, it is generally true that uh, leaner individuals are less carb intolerant as overweight individuals. Mm -hmm. And when you're starting with a new client, do you have a gauge or, or a testing method to find out their carb tolerance level? prior to working with them? Or yes. is that something that you kind of establish as you've gone through the first few stages of coaching? Yes, because it's, um, it's quite invasive. So basically what I do to establish someone's carb tolerance is I look at the reactions of a very systemically planned high-carb versus uh, high-fat meal at different uh, times of day. Okay. And based on how they respond to that, mainly their energy and hunger levels, we can usually get a pretty good uh, idea of someone's carb tolerance. But the thing is, um, you can only do this with a client that has you know, good adherence, good compliance, because if someone's very prone to uh, compulsive eating, not sticking to the diet, I mean, you can't do a test like this because it will be very confounded by right. someone not following the instructions. <laughs> of course. It's kind of hard to test something if they're not actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> exactly. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I could see why somebody who had, you know, more of an athletic background would be able to adhere to the protocols more more easily. Yeah, they are more more likely to be uh, mm -hmm. compliant. Mm -hmm. They're also probably more in tune with their body, so they're able to give you uh, more reliable feedback, I would think. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. It's still something I'm I'm often wary of, but um it's definitely true that you know, as, you, as you're more experienced with food and dieting and uh, getting to a very low body fat percentage, that you learn a lot about your body and how it reacts to different things. Mm -hmm. I think that might be one of my favorite parts about working with clients, especially the newbies, because it, it's amazing how many folks just walk around and have no idea what's going on internally. They, they don't understand the cues that their body's giving them. That's not something that they've ever paid attention to before. And it's kind of fun, at least for me, to teach, help teach them how to pay attention to those cues so that we have information to work off of to be able to fine-tune things as they go. Definitely. I fully agree with that. And I think that many people, uh, they have these preconceived notions based on what other people told them or mm -hmm. they should... Um, you know, I can't describe how many people I've had, um, especially women that um, told me I am a super high carb responder. I should be on a super high carb diet. I should be, uh, you know, eating pancakes every day. Uh -huh. And when you do the actual carb testing, um, and I've also just really tested it in um, certain individuals. You just put them on a low, low carb versus low fat diet for a few weeks, switch over basically crossover design, see what happens, see how they respond. And very often it's it's just not true what someone's initial thoughts are. And they're um, quite often um, not really based on anything either. It's just somehow people get this idea about their body, how, how it should be, not mm -hmm. how they really feel it, but how it should be. And then they act as if it's that way. Or maybe that's what they're hoping for. <laughs> right. As long as I keep pretending, it will come true. Exactly. I mean, who doesn't want to eat carbs all the time if they could? <laughs> right. And you generally prescribe more along the lines of a ketogenic diet. Is that correct? For for regardless of the, where someone's starting. I mean, obviously, you test for carb t 
tolerance or intolerance, but baseline is more along the lines of a ketogenic approach. Is that correct? I, I wouldn't say I'm like, um, I'm a keto guy. I have gotten that reputation because compared to most uh, bodybuilding coaches and most other evidence-based uh, coaches, I am generally a fan of relatively low carb diets. Mm-hmm. But if, um, well, if you just look at my clientele and you see how many of them are now actually in ketosis, it might be, let me think, about 10 people. And I'll probably have a little over 30 clients at the moment. So, And that's basically as high as it gets. So I wouldn't say that um, in general more than a third of my clients are actually on keto diets. Uh, it's generally increased because of the reputation that I've gotten and my post of paleo effects. So I, I attract that community more. Makes sense. Um, Makes it sense. Used, yeah, it used to be like almost 0% and it's now increasing. <laughs> and when someone isn't on a ketogenic, is it more than a more of a cyclical ketogenic approach? Like you are incorporating carbohydrates here and there based off of either their you know aesthetic goals or their training needs? I generally cycle uh, calories and thereby uh, carbohydrates quite intensely in most of my clients in their nutrition programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm not really a fan of true cyclical ketogenic dieting um, in that if someone um, actually goes into full ketosis and you you get them out with a huge um, amount of carbohydrates and you keep doing that, then um, in many individuals you sort of get the... um, the keto flu period, but mm-hmm. nonstop. Right. So not everyone really tolerates that well. And that's an easy fix just by reintroducing carbohydrates. Right. Or going full keto. Gotcha. When you... I think where my questions are. When you far, first start... We're just going to go into the context more of female specifics now. When you first start... Sure working with a client, is there an assessment that you run through in terms of gauging their metabolic state prior? I mean, you obviously do the carbon tolerance testing, but is there, do you have any protocol for first starting out with a client to gauge their metabolic state or health? Not really metabolic um, state or health per se, but I do have a very extensive intake form uh, where I have various questions about someone's genetic potential, um, their nutrition history, training history, um, you know, weight, body fat percentage, strength level, all of those things. And I do, and obviously, I do ask for like any kind of pathology that they have or had. Mm-hmm. So if they actually had um, a metabolic uh, disease or anything, that then that is definitely very relevant. Uh, based on that, I generally construct someone's uh, picture of uh, what you might call their, their metabolic state. And then you're able to prescribe a, at least a baseline diet for them. And then once you've gone through a few rounds of testing of the diet protocols, you're able to make adjustments from there. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. If you... For the the women that you have worked with, if you've if any of them have had metabolic issues or, or or hormonal issues, what's something? What are some that you see often in ladies? 
I mean, I, I have definitely have experience working with a lot of women who come from a very strict keto background or even just a paleo background, which tends to be on the lower carb side of things. And a lot of them have issues, thyroid issues, uh, TSH levels are too low, T3, T4 are off. Um, do, are those th things that you see as well? I do see it, um, not as commonly, um, because um, probably just because I attract, I don't attract the kind of um, that kind of client. If someone has um, very serious health problems, they'll usually look at another coach. Makes sense um, because that's their main priority, and people hire me to focus on maximum progression in fat loss slash muscle growth or strength. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have definitely seen it, and what I mostly see is. Um, psychological issues, mm -hmm. especially in women with regard to carbohydrates, and they go both ways in that uh, many women are carb-fearing or fat-fearing, and uh, they think, you know, fat will make you fat, and um, they basically just want to eat carbohydrates, and you have to instruct them, um, basically instruct them to totally revamp their internal menu of uh, healthy foods and um the foods they should be eating to uh, fill in their macronutrients. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you also have the people that think they can only lose fat uh, when they are in a fully ketogenic state, and uh, they think that carbs are the devil and um, something evil that you know uh, increases insulin and that increases fat storage. Thereby, mm -hmm. you get fat, and you cannot um, lean out if you don't go super low carb. Yes, and that. Definitely parallels with a lot of psychological issues with um, strong nocebo effects and that women that think they need a lot of carbohydrates often uh, react unfavor unfavorably to lower carb diets if you don't explicitly instruct them off the research showing that it is very unlikely that any effect uh, they might feel is actually due to the carbohydrates. Right. Um, and in particular, stress and sleep are hugely underrated compared to the carbohydrate to fat ratio in the diet. Um, I can't recall how many times I've had conversations with clients that went along the lines of, okay, I'm, I'm feeling quite poorly at the moment, um, strength progress is still good, and I'm still um, losing um, some fat, but I'm feeling more and more fatigued, um, kind of a lethargy that's accumulating, mm -hmm. and I think I need more carbohydrates. And then I ask, so how's your sleep? Well, uh, hasn't been very good lately. Uh, in fact, for the past two weeks, I've only been sleeping about five hours a night, and I barely slept at all last night. <laughs> well, that's probably the cause of how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. It's true. So in, in our in the intake form we do as well, that is a is a huge component: lifestyle factors, sleep, stress levels, what's going on in your life, and it's amazing how little weight people put that put it that on in terms of, of how the yeah. progress is going to be and how they feel overall. I mean, sleep, essential, essential. And it's, yeah. it's just amazing how few people put that as part of it, as part of the whole picture. Yeah. And, then, and, it, and it shows in research too. That's, that's the funny thing. Um, because often it's the more evidence-based kind of skeptical people that, um, you know, think stress and sleep, you know, they may be important for well-being and health, but not directly for your body composition. But if you look at research and you look at the effect of um, just overall life stress, low and high groups, and look at someone's recovery rates after strength training, and it basically doubles if your stress level goes from low to high. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So if you normally need about 24 hours to recover from training and you experience a lot of life stress, it might be 48 hours. Right. And um, sleep is probably even more um, significant. And uh, research has found that someone sleeping 5.5 hours compared to 8 hours, or someone in research is obviously groups of people. Right. So 5.5 compared to 8 hours of sleep a night. And they found that fat loss is over 50% less and muscle loss is over 50% higher, which basically wow. means that um, you know sleep is in many aspects uh, a lot more important even than the, the minutiae of your training and your diet. I completely agree. And that's that's something I've personally experienced um, just during stressful times. And when I was in the past prepping for shows, that was always my number one priority. You know, diet, I, I, I generally got, got a pretty good rhythm down. And I found that having the rhythm and not worrying so much about hitting everything perfectly, um, that eliminated that stress factor. Sleep was the next thing. And then it was like, okay, if I'm sleeping well, I'm feeling good the next day, I'll base my training volume and frequency around that. And if there was a night where I didn't sleep well when I was supposed to train the next day, training didn't happen. And I was actually able in the last two preps get away with far less training volume and making sleep more of a priority. And my results were substantial. Right. Yeah, I think... Uh, many people uh, get in the trap of the all or nothing mentality and it's something that can be really motivating to go all in or um, just just lay back and I, I fully have that mentality myself but I've learned to uh, that controlling it is something that is really really beneficial to long-term success mm-hmm. uh, many people get stuck in basically not doing anything um, or trying to do everything perfectly and stress about you know, hitting your macronutrients to the gram mm-hmm. um, is that that kind of stress will have a lot, lot larger negative effect than the positive effect of, you know, getting everything right to the 1%. Right, right. And I mean, part of what getting everything right and, you know, being all in should encompass making sure that you're sleeping enough. It shouldn't just be, you know, you're hitting every single rep in the gym when you're trying to achieve a goal. You would think exactly. that sleep so, and all of that should encompass being all in, like you're taking care of yourself across the board. Yes, for sure. And I think health and body composition are much more strongly linked than many people believe. For me personally, uh, a real wake-up call, no pun intended, was when my father told me, um, I, have, I have insomnia to give um, a background on this. My father told me, if you had half the discipline you put into your diet and training and you put that into correcting your sleep, you would not have uh, any problem. And he was right. I basically um, started prioritizing my sleep and now I don't have any significant problems. I do have to maintain a very consistent biorhythm, have my meals at similar times of day. If there's not enough um, sunlight, I need light therapy. I still need daily melatonin supplementation. Because otherwise, I will basically delay my sleep-wake cycle continuously. Mm. Because the nature of my insomnia appears to be non-24, which means my basically my biological clock um, thinks there are 26 hours in a day. <laughs> Interesting. And it, it doesn't. Yeah. So I basically have to continuously reset it and manipulate my biorhythm um, stringently. But when I do that, I don't have any problems, and I sleep better than 
um, definitely sleep better than the average person um, because sleep is so incredibly underrated. Agreed. And luckily, I've always been a big fan of sleep. I love sleeping. It's, it's probably one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> if I could take a nap every day, I would. If I could make it, make it fit into my schedule, just, you know, 20-minute power nap, I feel a hell of a lot better. And for myself, I, I noticed that when I'm stressed, the sleep is, is definitely affected in terms of just being able to fall asleep, you know, turning my head, the mind off and, and quieting the, the clatter. Um, I have found that melatonin works for me as well. Um, for those, I have worked with a few clients who have had sleep issues probably related to stress and just not being able to quiet their mind. But quite a few don't respond very well to melatonin. Um, I've noticed they get yeah, if, really bad if, headaches. If the nature of your insomnia is not related to your biorhythm, then mm -hmm. melatonin won't do anything, basically, because it's just the natural uh, hormone that your body produces to basically um, signal that it's time to um, initiate the sleep cycle. Mm -hmm. Basically, the hormone your body uses to tell the body to go to sleep. And... Um, if someone is already producing enough natural melatonin, doesn't have any circadian rhythm disturbance, then you know just putting in more of that hormone won't do anything, and indeed you can get side effects. What's also interesting about melatonin is that there is um, strong individual uh, inter-individual variability mm -hmm. and optimal dosage. Most people respond quite well to three milligrams with uh, very little additional benefit going up to five. Some people have some benefit, um, probably, especially if there's like no biorhythm whatsoever in that person mm -hmm. uh, or severe jet lag. But some people respond a lot better to, say, 0.3 uh, milligrams or uh, even micrograms. Oh, wow. Tiny, basically tiny. Almost, oh, yeah, almost homeopathic dosages. And that just works best. It's really um, odd because we don't really know why uh, some re would react that well. That is interesting. And I guess that would just be a, a trial and error sort of thing for someone to figure out. And, yes. and we have a lot of, like you mentioned, the jet lag. I have quite a few clients who are do work shifts. So they're either nurses or first responders. And so their sleep cycle is off, way, way off. And that's always a challenge for them to, you know, when they can try to get in some sort of a rhythm to get back on track, yes. which I find... Yeah. Manipulating their diet is much more challenging. Um, so like, like you mentioned, the light therapy, um, when they do sleep, you know, if they're sleeping during the daytime, like blackout lights, you know, eye mask, something to keep, keep the light out to hopefully help get things back, back on track. Yeah, you basically want to, I have a lot of uh, shift workers probably because of my articles about circadian rhythm stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, gets me these kind of clients. But I found that basically you have two options in shift workers, very roughly said. And that's either you want to find a rhythm, even if it's weird and unconventional and not socially acceptable, um, that they can get into and maintain. And even if it's artificial, they have, to use, they have to wake up in the middle of the night and use light therapy. As long as they can sleep at the same hours and they get a good eight hours of sleep during their period. Um, and their rhythm can be quite consistent, then that is great. However, if someone has shift work and the times change, 
Um, so it, they have shift work and the shifts are in irregular time periods. Right. Like then sometimes they work overnight to... and sometimes they work all through the day and it might happen yes. in the same week. They, exactly. Day and night shifts uh, combined basically. And then uh, you often want to establish uh, one rhythm and then very aggressively switch over to the other rhythm uh, when you have those kind of shifts. Or if it's just one shift, just kind of suck it up and um, do that one day in the other uh, rhythm, but try to maintain your rhythm as best as possible. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And so I like... In either scenario, yeah. yeah, you want to have a stable rhythm or at least switch to one uh, as soon as possible. That makes sense. And I like what you said about, you know, what's perhaps not socially acceptable. Um, I recently worked with a client who was struggling with that, you know, on her she was compromising her sleep to be able to do social activities and it was messing everything up. And it was a very difficult conversation to have because she obviously needed to work and that was her schedule, but she also wanted to participate in, you know, X, Y, and Z. And yet she was only getting a few hours of sleep a night and wasn't willing to compromise on that. And then that was just a conversation that we had like, well, Hey, these results might not happen because of that. So at that point, you're making a choice as to whether you want to get on track with your health or you want to participate in these activities. I think, I mean, that's the social component of life and dieting and training is always going to be a challenge, but it was uh, very much evident in her in her case. Yes, I, uh, I fully agree. And um, a realization that helps uh, for me and many of my clients is that life really is a lot better even if you only have, you know, two hours of social activity, two hours of, um, or well, probably more than two hours of work, say six hours of work, two hours of social activities and an hour in the gym or something, uh, compared to having a lot more time but being sleep deprived. It's really just not worth it. Mm -hmm. Would you say that appetite is generally going to be affected the most when someone's sleep deprived or at least the the psychological component of it you know they're, they're tired like you mentioned uh, a client earlier you know feeling that she needed more carbs because she was feeling tired yes the, in research the um, increase in ad libitum energy intake basically uh, what most people would call appetite is about 20 percent even in quite modest sleep deprivation so if someone isn't tracking their macros and they are sleep deprived then intuitively they will be inclined to overeat by 20 percent which is quite huge that's if substantial. you're going into yeah if you're going into a 20 percent surplus from maintenance and you are now in a state where nutrient partitioning isn't optimal because you're sleep deprived probably also more susceptible to stress then that is very likely to result in significant fat gain. Regardless of what that 20% is made up in terms of macros, just the surplus right, in and of still, itself. Yeah, total energy balance is still the prime determinant of mm -hmm. fat gain. So in other words, make sleep a priority. Everything else will become easier. Or at least, at least a little easier. <laughs> Yeah. So just going back, backtracking a little bit, we were talking about melatonin, it just made me think of other uh, supplements that are essential and, you know, being on the 
having shared the panel back in Paleo FX, I think that most of us on the panel agreed on what the essential supplementation for the average person should be. Um, vitamin D, D3, uh, I'm trying to remember a few of the other ones. Multivitamin. Um, I remember talking about creatine substantially when it comes to training and how there was some variability and kind of going into the melatonin as well. Like it, it depends on whether someone responds to it well or not. Do you have any thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there is, um, uh, again, substantial inter-individual variability and um, responsiveness to creatine. Basically, you have low, medium, high responders, um, although that makes it seem as if there are three categories. It's just a continuum. Um, and based on that um, some people respond extremely well they basically um, when they start using creatine in the loading phase they might gain two or even a woman might gain two kilos of what is mostly water weight but it's Mm -hmm. intramuscular water weight for the most part so as long as uh, potassium and sodium are in balance and water intake is sufficient, most of that will go into your muscles and make it look as if you just gained a lot of muscle. And then which is always which it's is always nice. For, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it's not uncommon for them to almost double their rate of progress basically on creatine, whereas other people that naturally have uh, closer to saturated creatine stores in their body um, might not benefit at all from creatine. And sometimes you can make someone a responder by combining the creatine with either lots of insulin or um, just consuming it in a state where insulin sensitivity is high because it seems that insulin facilitates um, not just the uptake of creatine which is naturally quite high but it also modulates the ceiling uptake which basically means that if um, creatine and insulin um, coexist in the body then your body has a higher level to which it allows creatine to be stored. Let's say without insulin, it would um, cap the uptake of creatine in muscle tissue at 80%. And with insulin, it might allow it to go to 100%. So uh, taking it post-workout, combining it with uh, insulin sensitizing uh, supplements, things like that are strategies that can make you respond more to creatine. And that's just something that an individual would have to experiment with in terms of, like you had mentioned just just previously about progress. Are you referring to both aesthetic, like body composition changes in progress and also strength gains? Yes, creatine mainly affects um, rate of muscle growth and strength. Um, Also performance in terms of work capacity, um, one RM strength as in maximal uh, powerlifting kind of strength, not so much, directly at least, um, but it will indirectly via the increased strength from muscle growth, I guess, from training. Okay. And what would you say is like a, a significant amount of time to run a test like that to see if someone responded well to it? Like what, what would be a good time frame? A couple weeks, two weeks, a week? And obviously so the, the individual's going to have to be more in tune with their body and paying attention along the way. Mm-hmm. If you're loading creatine, which I generally recommend because that's another strategy that can increase the ceiling uptake of creatine, mm-hmm. um, twenty, which which basically means taking about twenty grams per day, assuming there are no digestive issues, uh, four doses of five grams, or just split over your meals, maybe a bit higher 
with breakfast and post-workout because insulin sensitivity is higher then. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you load it like that, then you need um, generally just about four days to get the effects. So you'll also you'll already see the amount of weight that someone gains, and that's at least somewhat of a proxy for how well they uh, respond to it. Um, for the actual effects, you probably need to get at least a few training sessions in. So it mainly depends on how many um, training sessions you um, need. What you really want to look at is work capacity, which is uh, you can think of it as the average repetition drop-off if your reps um, in the bench press or um, say so you're doing hip thrusts. Normally they go um, 12 reps, 11 reps, 10 reps, um, 9 reps. And now you're taking creatine and you find that they it's more like 12, 12, 11, 11. Mm -hmm. Then um, you can say, well, work capacity has improved and you respond well to creatine. Makes sense. Seems like a simple enough process. Mm -hmm. The biggest but difference... you do need that... to measure it. Yes, that makes sense. And... and... It's important what you said about the the digestive component because I did have a few clients uh, prior to working with me who who actually ran their own experiments with creatine and uh, it did not sit well with them, unfortunately. Mm. Is that something do you feel like could be remedied over time or, or perhaps having smaller doses? Yep, smaller doses can help. Splitting the dosage can help. Um, the strategies that I just mentioned to increase uptake, they also generally help. Sometimes um, uh, people respond better to the newer, more advanced kind of forms of creatine. But generally, people don't uh, respond better to those at all than just good old creatine monohydrates. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of digestion, uh, creatine malate or whatever other new form, sometimes people respond better. So it's nice if you can get uh, test samples, for example, in that case. Right, rather than buying like a, a large batch of it and then yeah. realizing it's not going to work well for you. Five kilo tub and then experiencing exactly. uh, you're, you're on the toilet all day. <laughs> not fun. Definitely not fun, especially yeah. if a regular job. You need to be at your desk. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's a big difference in women's response versus men's? Um, not much. You would expect men to respond better, actually, because mm -hmm. uh, responsiveness to creatine is correlated with muscle fiber type, and women are generally, at least strength training women, are generally um, a bit more type 1 dominant than men. So you would expect it, but I haven't really um, seen it that way. I've seen um, many examples of women that respond very well to creatine. Interesting. I noticed that, that a lot of women, especially the ones that I work with who aren't who are more of the average woman maybe they resistance strain here and there but it's not something that has had been a part of their lives a lot there is a fear in taking creatine because you know there's a dogma that they're going to end up holding a lot of water and feel bloated and puffy all the time yeah and i'd say that's um if if you're using the strategies that we just discussed and like i said water intake is sufficient Potassium intake is sufficient. Also, sodium intake is sufficient, but some women just completely avoid sodium, um, kind of try to minimize its intake, and then that actually results in problems. But if you have those things in check, then uh, most people don't, won't get uh, a lot of excessive subcutaneous water retention from creatine. 
I found that to be true as well. But a very important note on the salt, and that kind of can can actually help us round out. Um, we have about five more minutes left, and I just want to round out the supplementation overall. And I think that salt intake, sodium intake, has it has a huge role and is is very important. Yeah, it's really demonized. Um, but if you look at the research, hyponatremia, basically a lack of sodium, is actually often more common than a surplus in athletes that are eating a healthy diet because resistance training and endurance training too um, substantially increases sodium requirements mm-hmm. because you're, you're, uh, when you're sweating and training, you lose a lot of it. And uh, the recommendations by the government, um, I think they're still two grams or something. That's it's like of total salt, table salt. Yeah. That's ridiculously yeah. low. It's tiny. It's, um, yeah, it's almost impossible to just eat um, a healthy diet uh, and use salt and stick to that. And there's also no need to. I think in research, the um, upper intake, um, the last meta-analysis showed about 12, 10 to 12 grams of salt and about half of that is sodium to be uh, at the point where you may get um, side effects. So that's five to six grams of actual sodium. Which is a substantial. Lot more than what the government, yes. Right, isn't the government, the government recommendations delicious. in the milligrams? I think they're, uh, they recommend sticking to, depending on which agency you look at, right. sticking to less than two grams total. Right, makes sense. So beyond in making sure you're getting in your salt, so just don't be shy with salting your food, um, which obviously is going to yes, help with the flavor, flavor profile of food as well. <laughs> yes, this is one thing where your body is extremely good at autoregulating itself, fluid and sodium intakes. Your uh, desire for salty food and water are very strongly related to the actual amounts your body has of them. So if you just drink to first and eat salt to taste, you will often be quite well off that's an easy gauge to go by i think because rather than you know being stuck in trying to hit numbers all the time again going back to how you feel and listening to the cues that your body's giving you you're getting them for a reason yeah it's it's terrible to count the grams of sodium in your food (laughs) i can imagine that would be very very meticulous very meticulous would you say that there are other i should say uh micronutrients along with things like sodium that are essential regardless of what your diet looks like? Um, well, I'd say none of it is strictly essential, but uh, vitamin D3 that you mentioned is um, so commonly needed because um, sunlight deprivation is so extremely common in today's society mm-hmm. that it, it's, it's semi-essential. Uh, the other one would probably be iodine. If your um, if your salt isn't iodized, and that seems to be something that um, has fallen in disfavor, salt actually became iodized because iodine deficiency was so extremely common right, that, the gov- that governments uh, thought, okay, we should just put this stuff in something that everyone consumes so that uh, we solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, they baked salt or other fortified foods, um, but it's sort of uh, slipped under the radar again, and now most people are just consuming regular salt again. And as a result, iodine deficiency rates are extremely high, and this can directly affect um, inter alias your thyroid, uh, which can directly affect your 
metabolic rate or energy expenditure. <laughs> so this is something that I've also seen um, in a few clients. They, especially the ones that eat very little salt, they uh, can substantially increase their energy intake simply by correcting an iodine deficiency. And is that something you could be tested for? Um, yes, but there's virtually no risk of over-consuming iodine. So I would just recommend everyone to consume iodized salt. Um, and it's nice if you can consume seaweed or more seafood in general uh, in your diet. Because that's all... It's naturally like, occurring. Also something that's just... Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's like all positive seafood that research is so abundantly clear that it's healthy that uh, you can almost recommend to everyone that doesn't have a food intolerance. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you're also getting fish oil, which I would assume is something that you recommend as well. If someone's not yes. consuming high quality fish on a regular basis. Yes, I definitely prefer the fish um, because of the many problems with fish oil supplements. Uh, they're often of, oxidized. Right, in terms of the quality and source. Yes, they, they don't contain nearly what's on the label. Um, their bioavailability is very poor because mm -hmm. uh, they're not the natural oils anymore. And like with most things, bioavailability and, and the percentage of um, usable substance your body actually gets from it because um, your body doesn't get what you consume. It's always a percentage of that. Right. It's bioavailability, basically. Um, it's, it's really poor because the oils are processed like with everything, almost everything at least, bioavailability decreases the more you process it. Right. Anything else? As a final message, um, since uh, your audience is mostly female, I would say, um, just shameless plug, check out my article on the natural muscular potential of women. Uh, this is something that... Um, I just checked it as over 10,000 likes now. I Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed yeah. that read. It was a good read. Very informative. Yeah, it got, um, much more popular than I um, anticipated. Basically, there I go into the myth that women have less potential for uh, muscle growth and strength and fitness in general than men. And I think a lot of your points were spot on especially with, with the population of women that I work with and, and those who you know, have considered getting into fitness and know that it's important but have this, this fear, this dogma around it because right. of what they've heard or what they read or just misinformation. And uh, it, it's hard. I mean, just like with the government standards for diet, it's hard to <laughs> bring about the truth and get people to see yeah, that when they've heard so much in the past. We basically went in evidence-based fitness from, you know, recommending people um, that they should do strength training. But now we're, we're sort of telling women, uh, you know, you should be doing strength training um, in addition to cardio, depending on your goals. Uh, but you won't really achieve anything. So you should do it, but it's not going to do anything. And that's basically why you got to do it. It's really, uh, first of all, it's not recommendation. But secondly, fortunately, it's not true at all. You can achieve right. a lot with your body as a woman. Right. Along with, I think, just confidence in being capable of anything at that yes. point, which is a great overall message, I think. Yes. The placebo and nocebo effects are huge. Well, you want to remind everybody where they can find you? 
Um, sure. Um, if you if you can spell Bayesian bodybuilding, you will get to my Twitter, Facebook, or uh, website by doing that. My name, MenoHenselmans.com, will also get you there. Um, and we'll make so, yeah, sure to Google put my name we'll make sure Bayesian to put bodybuilding. we'll put all your info in the show notes as well, so people can find you there for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and I hope our audience did as well. And um, I'd love to have you on again down the road. Perhaps we can tackle training at that point since uh, you referred to your article. I think that would be very informative. My pleasure to be on the show. All right. Well, thanks. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Her Body. We'll see you guys next time. You've been listening to Her Body IOFM with your hosts, Alex Navarro and Andrea Jengel. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more information about women's health and performance.